Hi, everybody. This is Stephanie Ruper. Thank you for tuning in to the Meaning of Everything podcast, where we ask some of our deepest questions about who we are and what we can do about it. Today is episode number 28, and I'm having on Amod Lele, a specialist in Indian philosophy who also specializes in how we can apply philosophical concepts to our daily lives. Now, this whole podcast exists because somebody who listens to this podcast recommended a mode to me. This, uh, this listener sent me a link to a mode's blog and I stumbled on it and realized that a mode was writing about things that I have put a lot of thought into, but was, he was saying things that I hadn't yet thought of that I hadn't yet researched. And it was, Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Uh, and so I reached out immediately. I was like, hey, I got to have you on. And specifically, uh, Amode has a lot of really cool ideas on his blog, loveofallwisdom.com. Amode has a lot of really cool ideas. Uh, but one of the topics that is most fascinating to me and pressing is something that he calls qualitative individualism. Now, you might be thinking, what the heck is that? When I first encountered the idea, I also thought, what the heck is that? Uh, this is the phrase that Amode uses, and Amode has a blog post actually explaining why he chose these words. Uh, qualitative individualism gestures towards this idea we have that you need to just be yourself, and that happiness comes from finding your true self, or building your true self, or whatever kind of language. Usually it's finding, uh, listening to yourself, being who you are. Uh, and this idea, which is so live in our culture today, has really long and interesting historical roots, which Amoda and I discuss uh, in the podcast, and really interesting implications for how we try to make careers today and how we try to be spiritual and how we try to find happiness and also with how we identify. And Amoda and I actually have a really fascinating conversation about uh, cultural appropriation and about uh, identity politics and all of the ways in which this kind of individualism is really uh, shaping our political discourse. And it's all very important in both on the right and the left. We need to be, I think, taking a much closer look uh, at this idea, um, specifically with respect to things like identity politics, which are so important today. Uh, so I'm very eager to get uh, get into the conversation. Uh, just a little bit more about Amode. I'll tell you a bit about his background. Uh, Amode has a PhD in Indian philosophy, I believe, uh, from Harvard, and is currently working, which we discuss in the podcast later, is currently working at Boston University, not as a full-time professor, um, not as faculty, but does teach an occasional course. And so Amoda is working full-time and an academic on the side and a great academic on the side. And that's a really great and important thing for us to be talking about is uh, the way in which uh, academia is... Uh, so uh, how we wrap up our identities with academia and sort of draw these strict lines between what's in academia and what isn't. And I think that those are lines that really need to be blurred, which is, of course, why in part I do this podcast and also why Amode's work is so important because Amode is a brilliant philosopher and teaches a great course on philosophy and has done a lot of work and research and is still uh, working you know, earning a living somewhere else. So that's all uh, very important stuff that we dive into. 
and I want to dive into it right now. So uh, thank you again very much for tuning in. I am so happy to have you here with us. Without further ado, welcome Amode. Welcome Amode. Hi. Hi, Stephanie. How are you doing? Doing well. How are you? Yeah. Yeah. I'm all right. It's, you know, I have mono. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, no, no, of course you didn't. I have mono and it you, is tiring. It's very tiring. You, you look fantastic considering. <laughs> <That's>, um, <laughs> I appreciate that. That is the wonder of 21st century makeup right there. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. So anyway, that's, that's been my life recently and trying to get work done at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you are, you're in Boston, right? Mm-hmm. Cool. And how is that? Did you just get a huge snowstorm? I hate talking about the weather, but I'm actually really curious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we had, it was moderately large uh, yesterday, yesterday morning. Yeah. Not, not so large that we got the day off from work, um, which right. we were sort of expecting, but then didn't happen. I see. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> very, very cool. And so you have you've been in Boston for a while, right? Working on questions about Eastern philosophy, Indian philosophy? Yeah, well, I came to uh, the Boston area in 2000 to do a PhD at Harvard. And the, the field was officially uh, the study of religion because I wanted to work on Asian philosophy. And it was, it still is difficult to work on Asian philosophy and philosophy departments. I think the situation's mm -hmm. got significantly better over the past 10 years, but still, it's still be hard. And in, in, in 2000, there were, there were very few philosophy departments where you could, you could study Asian philosophy. And so um, religion departments often seemed like a better fit. So that's where I did my, my degree. And I finished that up in 2007. I tried to go on the academic job market for a few years, and uh, that didn't really work out um, for you know reasons that anyone in academia is familiar with. But I had um, in my last year of grad school, I had met the woman who would become my wife, and she has a lot of ties to the Boston area. So I decided to to stay here, and it has uh, a lot of advantages. Uh, you know, I was able to pivot to this day job in educational technology, which is going quite well. I'm a manager now. And it also means there's there's such a large intellectual community around the the Boston area, which I, I really appreciate. You know, there's a there's a reading group that meets every Tuesday at Harvard to talk about Hegel and Heidegger. Wow! And you know that's and mo and most of the people involved are not at Harvard. It's just you know people from ar around various universities in the area, and you mm -hmm. know there aren't that many places in the world that that sort of thing happens. Yeah, I think it's really important. I actually. I'm a firm believer in the endeavor, right? And the quality of thinking and work that can be produced once you have, if you have stepped outside of academia, right? Like I, your blog is brilliant, right? And it's really Thank well you. researched. You're welcome. <laughs> and it's really well researched and all of these different things. And you just happen to have this life where you are a scholar and also employed at the same time. Um, yeah, well, yeah. I, I think it's really important that we understand that those we shouldn't put such rigid boundaries between academic and not academic. You know. Right, and well, that's that's certainly my my life. I mean, I teach, I do teach a course in Indian philosophy at uh, at BU um, on the on the side. You know, it's not part of my my uh, day job payment, so you know, it's a significant extra work. But um, 
but it is something that that uh, that I enjoy doing, and you know, so I'm, I'm effectively an adjunct for for uh, the purposes of that course, which is generally a terrible thing that I advise people not to do. But basically, this is doing being this is the the right way to be an adjunct is to have a full time job that has nothing to do with your adjuncting that actually pays your rent, and then you know, being an adjunct gets you some extra money as well as doing something you like, and and that's that's a great way to do it. So so I'm able to do that. And you know, able to to publish scholarly articles as well. Um, you know, working on some right now, and have some ideas for a book. You know, it's it's uh, it's a busy life, but but I but I enjoy it, and I I will say it helps a lot that I don't have children. I don't think I could combine the paid employment and my scholarly passions in the way that I do if raising new human beings was also a part of the uh, the picture. Yeah, they take a they take a lot of time. I feel this. I feel the same way about children and about boyfriends. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I work. Um, cool. That's really cool. Um, thank you. Thank you for sharing about your life. I wanted to talk about amodenosis, but listeners, I wanted to talk about a particular set of ideas that I found really interesting on Amode's blog. There are actually many interesting ideas on the blog. Can you remind me what it's called again? The blog. The blog's called Love of All Wisdom. Yes, and I will link to it in the show notes. It's great. Google it. Click on it if you're into philosophical ideas and especially how they can be applied or thought about in your daily life. It's a really great resource. So I recommend that. Uh, One of the ideas that you've been thinking about recently is something that's really important to me, which is sort of the way that we practice individualism or romanticize individualism in the West. I guess mm-hmm. maybe that's a way to put it. You use the language of qualitative individualism, which yeah. is, which is a, such a philosophical term. Like it's such a, you know, a scholarly way. Qualitative yeah. individualism. Can you can you tell us like what that looks like in our daily lives? Yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's the term qualitative individualism is is the best one that I found so far. I'm not entirely crazy about it, in part just because it is such a mouthful. But it, it's it's the one that so far I found uh, expresses the idea best, and it and it comes from a, a sociologist philosopher named Georg Simmel, um, kind of turn of the the twentieth century uh, author. And what Simmel meant when when he came up with the idea was that that what we when we use the term individualism, there are two different kinds of things that we might mean, that people kind of often think about individualism in, in terms of this sort of ideal of, of political equality that comes from people like Locke and Kant, who think, th- who, who think that, you know, ev- like everybody should have this kind of for- formal equality, and, and they all are owed respect for their dignity as individuals that all have equal worth, that comes from their kind of capacity as, as human reasoners. And the thing about that approach is that the differences between human beings don't matter a whole lot. It's the, sort of the fact that you are human and have this, this sort of rational humanity and, and sort of human dignity, which is the same as everybody else's human dignity, is what's really kind of decisive in that ethics and especially that political philosophy. And Simmel wants to distinguish that from qualitative individualism, which is one where the differences are actually paramount. And I, I think that, you know, when, when, when Kant talks about um, about the reasons for being ethical in, in the way that he wants people to be, he says that he, he, he's very, very concerned with the idea of autonomy. Um, he wants everybody to be making decisions for themselves. And yet the way that plays out is that each person's 
decision-making principle when they're truly autonomous is exactly the same as everybody else's decision-making principle, that it all comes down to this categorical imperative, which is to act according to a universalizable moral law. So that, so there, which, you know, kind of feels odd in a lot of ways to think that, you know, your, your autonomy consists in being the same as everybody else in some really crucial respect. And, you know, because the, the, for, for Kant, um, you know, the things that make you different from other people are you know, your, your desires and your inclinations. Those are at some sense not really you. The core of who you are is this rational ability to, to follow in a, in a rule-governed way. Whereas for the qualitative individualists, really the important thing is what makes us us as you know, what what makes me me and makes you you as in ways that are different from each other and that that's something really kind of decisive more than following a universalizable law and i think i think one one of the reasons we haven't seen we haven't talked about the ideal through philosophically is I don't think it's had defenders who are kind of as clear about it as as kant is mm. the People who have advocated it um, have often been people like, like Emerson and, and especially Nietzsche, who, you know, have, there's a lot of other things kind of tied up in there. And, and I think, I mean, I think there, there, is, there is a certain kind of paradox underlying it, which, which is that, you know, to the extent that you really do value this individual difference, it's hard to state it philosophically in the sense that it kind of has to be different for every person. It leads to the kind of things, you know, what is it? It's one of the Monty Python movies. I think it's Holy Grail where the person's kind of up, up, up on the, on the, in the, the speech and, the, and the, there's this crowd that's all sort of looking for, for a leader. And, and you know, he, he, he says, no, no, you should, you should, you should think for your, you shouldn't be following me. You should, you should think for yourselves. You should all be individuals. And the, and the crowd all shouts out, yes, yes, we are all individuals. Um, um, you know, so so there, there, there is always that little sort of tension and, and kind of self-undermining there. But I think it's, it's really important to think philosophically about this ideal of qualitative individualism because I think it underlies so much of our everyday ways of thinking um, and the, the kind of the ethical and practical and even psychological advice that we give to each other every day. I mean, I, you know, everybody's heard the injunction to, to be yourself. And what, what I think is sort of important to notice about that is, is that the advice isn't just, well, I want to be myself, leave me alone. It's be yourself. It, it, it's held up as an ideal for other people to follow. It's not just like, leave me alone and let me do my thing. It's you should do your thing. And, you know, someone on one of the commenters on the blogs pointed out how, how kind of tautological that is, you know, how, how would it be possible to not be yourself? And yet, you know, it, it is advice that, that is frequently given um, in part because I think there, there's a, a widespread feeling that it, it's very easy to kind of lose yourself in a sense or just not have found yourself. Right? We talk about, you know, finding myself as, as a sort of a kind of cliche about, you know, what, what like people going through a midlife crisis will, will do. So, you know, go, go off to, to, to India to find yourself or whatever. The idea being that we, in, in a certain way, we don't really know who we are. And I mean, Nietzsche subtitles Eke Homo with how one becomes what one is. And, and, this, and this comes out in, in so many pop songs. Like you know, I, I always think of Sting's Englishman in New York, that closing tagline he repeats over and over saying, be yourself no matter what they say. And, so, and, the, and, that, and that's kind of the contrast there, right? Is, is that being yourself is defined against them. 
and, and that's that's something that I guess is sort of in in Heidegger to a certain extent. You know, das, das Mann usually translated the they, right? Is this sort of like amorphous blob of conformity that you know to be authentically ourselves, we need to sort of react against. So there's some of this developed in, in existentialism, but in ways that I think are are not necessarily the most the most helpful. There's a lot here, and I've been trying to explore it, and I have. The, I think I, I did a series of posts about this on my blog kind of over the last couple of months. And it's been the longest series of posts that I've ever done. I think it came out to about eight of them and there's probably mm-hmm. still some more to say. But a big part of the reason for that is I've just been really trying to to explore this and work it out. Because I believe in the... Uh, the kind, the kind of advice that someone like Hans Georg Gadamer would give that you have to start philosophical inquiry where you are with, with your presuppositions sort of as, as, the, as they are and, and you know, figure out kind of what it is that you already believe and, and uh, your, your sort of presuppositions or prejudices and then kind of move dialectically from there to a more adequate position. And I think for the vast majority of us living in the 21st century West and even beyond the West at this point, really, this ideal of qualitative individualism is, is huge. You know, so, I mean, Sting, that's 30, 35 years ago now, but it keeps coming up and something like, you know, the movie Frozen and this, the, the, the Let It Go sequence in there is all, all about kind of, you know, th- throwing off the expectations that have kept Elsa out of, of being who she is. Yeah, I think, I think you're right that there's, that there's so much wrapped up in it. There is, I think something that we could add to your, you know, description of, of why perhaps, or why it's, why it's so common or, or the advice that we're often given. I think we sort of attach um, a purpose or a satisfaction to it. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it's often the advice because we expect that it's going to be the thing that fulfills us or fulfills people. And if they're not happy, maybe it's because they're not being their true selves. So people right. are desperately seeking for their true selves Although there is a sense in which we understand that that might not be the solution or the question itself could be part of the problem. Right, right, right. Um, Which is, yeah, which is interesting. What do you think? Right. Well, I think, I mean, you you know, I've noticed, especially, uh, especially in the past cu- couple of years, that this is something I think is essential for the, the transgender movement, um, you know, that, that, that whenever you hear you know, people talk about, about being transgender and, and why that's, that's significant, you know, over and over, it, there, there's, there's a message about, well, this is, this is my true self, uh, uh, you know, that, 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 you know, this, this, this is a, a, a male body or when you know, has, has a, a male anatomy or was assigned male, but really I'm female. Uh, that's, that's my true self. That, that's, that, that's the, the, there's kind of that rhetoric around it. And so, you know, and, and, and for reasons like that, it, it becomes very much a political ideal as well as a, an ethical one, right? that, that people feel that there are political and social structures that even if they do know what their true self is, you know, prevent them from actualizing it. Yeah, and there's a sense in which the American political landscape is itself, right, and this is, of course, in large part wrapped up in capitalism, but the American political landscape is First Amendment, right, free speech, these are my thoughts, these are my ideas, and there's something, I think, almost nationalistic about American individualism, right, I have the freedom to be myself, as opposed to you know, any, anywhere else in the world, right? Where, where the freedoms, where the freedoms aren't as, aren't as great. 
Well, that's, yeah, I mean, and I mean, and there, I think it's, I mean, that, that individualism is, is I mean, that, that's where the kind of the distinction between the two kinds of individualism becomes important mm. as well, is because I think it, there, there is a strong individualism written into the U.S. kind of culture and, and constitution, but it's, but it's not, it's not necessarily about finding oneself in, in the, in this way. And at least in the mm. way that it, it's come because it, because it comes out I mean, of, um, a sort of 18th century Lockean conception. And, you know, I mean, I mean, Simmel, when he makes the the qualitative versus quantitative distinction, will say that the quantitative individualism is a very 18th century thing and the qualitative individualism is a very 19th century thing. And, you know, the American institutions were set up in the 18th century when, when you know, Locke and, and Kant were kind of very much the the the, the thinkers who were, who were figuring things out and then the the 19th century kind of went in mm. in a different direction although you know i mean I, I again i think american thinkers did play a significant role in the development of qualitative individualism i've been you know reading about how emerson was actually an influence on nietzsche and i think that's something that people i you know it, it came as a came as news to me when I read that. I know, look at my face. To, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I, I haven't looked into that very much, but, um, mm-hmm. but that I, I think is, is significant. Yeah, okay. So obviously this idea goes back really far and you and your blog, you take it back to Plato and Aristotle. And I want to talk about the history, although I know that that could probably take a really long time. Sure. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about where it comes from? And I think probably particularly importantly is the relationship that it has developed with capitalism. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of different angles to to approach that question. You know, I think uh, philosophically, it's it's tied very much to to romanticism, and there you know there there were one one of the terms I was kind of looking at before I settled on qualitative individualism was was romanticism. But I realized like romanticism means this whole other wide range of things, including like relationship to nature and and other stuff that isn't really directly connected or, or a part of this ideal. Um, and I think the, the German romantics in particular were the ones who really kind of developed it. Wilhelm von Humboldt and, and um, Johann Gottfried Herder, Johann Wolfgang Goethe, um, Friedrich Schleiermacher, these are all just kind of names I'm, I'm throwing out here, but, that, but they're, they're kind of the ones who, you know, they, they were all kind of part of a movement uh, um, that we now sort of look at as romanticism and one which was really influential in development of contemporary philosophy not just in in germany and they're they're the ones who really kind of come up with this idea that our our individual differences are are really you know, philosophically significant and we need to sort of develop our individual creativity in ways that aren't necessarily what what other people do and so that's that's happening at a time when you know germany is moving towards a capitalist system, you know, not quite industrial capitalism yet, although that's kind of happening in England, they're seeing it there. And I think it's, it's not a coincidence that capitalism is tied to this idea, because I think it's, it's an ideal that doesn't really make a lot of sense in a pre-capitalist society, when your only real social option is to be a farmer just like your father was, be a homemaker just like your mother was, and and like their father and mother were, and like their father and mother were, you know, and, and that, that the social order is kind of enshrined in being the same way as it was for generations. This idea of finding yourself and becoming who you are doesn't make a lot of sense in that kind of context. You, you, you kind of have to, excuse me, have to subordinate yourself 
to this this sort of social structure. Whereas capitalism, I mean, what you know, we 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 often sort of think of capitalism in in terms of um, market exchange and and profit making, but those are things that have always existed to some extent or another. When when people really sort of say, well, what, what was decisive in the making of, of capitalism itself, the most important thing is the free labor market, that that people can go from, from job to job. You know, and there and there are ways that that can be oppressive in that, you know, people may be kicked off their traditional land and have no choice but to, to be kind of itinerant workers in a way that leaves them poorer than they were. But what it does mean is that, you know, there is this ability to move and ability to find something that's that's you know best suited to you in your in in your position given the constraints and those constraints may still be more decisive than your ability to to find yourself but but it makes this ideal sort of possible and thinkable and you know, as I, I say it on the blog post it also frustrates that ideal at every, at every turn you know and I, and thinking about you know my my own life kind of realizing you know how how i i had a passion for cross cultural philosophy and i thought you know yes i'm going to go and and realize that uh, and and you know live live that dream and be a uh, be you know, paid to to read and write about big ideas, just like my father was. Uh, that's what I want to do. And then realizing that, you know, in in the in the following forty or or, or fifty years, the the structures of the system had changed to a point that that was not a viable path for me. The the opportunities that my father had didn't exist for me. You know, largely because of. I think capitalist modes of reasoning on behalf of the university where, um, you know, they, you know, there, there was a long, there was a long period in the nineties and, and 2000s where people were saying, Oh, there's going to be a big demand for professors in the coming years because all the baby boomers are, are retiring and the people that they hired to teach the baby boomers are retiring. So that's going to create a lot of vacancies. And yeah, well, it depends on how you define vacancies. I mean, the, the jobs were the jobs were freed up, but they were replaced with adjuncts being, you know, paid two thousand dollars a course with no benefits instead instead of you know that and, and that and you know they could just hire tons of adjuncts at that rate for to to fill out the position that once once might have been taken by one professor teaching two courses a semester for seventy thousand dollars a year with benefits and. You know, I, I think like my, my father's a Marxist and I had sort of moved away from that for a while during grad school. And, you know, I, I think in part because I sort of felt immunized from capitalism and market forces, uh, seeing the university as this sort of different world. And then I got this rude awakening that actually it's anything but. And seeing that you no know, universities are subject to the same pressures as every other part of the market economy, especially because I happened to go on the market in 2007 and I didn't get a job that year because I was sort of just out of my PhD and still, you know, not maybe ready for a position yet. But then, you know, the following year was 2008 and the great crash and the bottom fell out of, of the market. And then there were just these positions that vanished and, and it all dried up. And, and, you know, I came to realize, well, so because of so because of the kind of pressures of capitalism, I'm like, actually, no, I can't actualize myself, not for a living, in the way that we were told. And I, I think there's a big, you know, the, the baby boomers in particular, I think, were, were the ones who really believe most passionately in the qualitative individualist ideal. You know, if you read like the the uh, Port Huron statement of the Students for Democratic Society and, and, the, and those sorts of documents, they... Um, they're really saying, you know, we believe in, in work as people's you know, power to be creative and define themselves. And you know, the advice that 
my generation at least heard over and over was do what you love and the money will follow. And that, I often say that's a lie. The only, and I, and I, I pull back from saying that that's a lie now. Um, but the only reason I pull back from saying it, it's a lie is that I don't think it's actually delivered with intent to deceive, but it sure as hell does deceive. It is absolutely false, 100%. And the most mind-blowing and amazing and staggering thing about that statement is that so many people believed it when it's so absurd on the face of it. You know, why would we ever think that the money would follow from people doing what they love? That's just, that, that's, you know, it, it's, it's, like, it's, like, it's like saying, eat, eat, all, eat all the, the fat and sugar you want and, and, and health will follow. You know, it, it, it's, it's the opposite of, of good advice. But because the boomers lived through the biggest expansion of, of wealth that the human race has ever seen and maybe ever will see, they could think that that was good advice. And, and so the ideal of, of qualitative individualism really flowered in, in the 60s, especially. And, and I think, you know, that the flowering of that ideal, I think probably was a good thing, but we're still sort of left then to kind of pick up the pieces in a world that economically bears more resemblance to the world of their, of their parents in the 30s than to, to their world in the, in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, we, we're, much, we're much more in the world of their parents who gave the, the, adv the advice of like, oh, why don't you major in something useful like business? You'll never actually get a job in, in, as, as, a, as a folk singer, you know? Yeah, uh, I um, so something that I learned from reading your blog was that we tend to underappreciate the individualism of Karl Marx. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, Mar you know when Marx kind of talks about, you know, he, he doesn't talk very much about what um, the better future classless society would look like. And I think when he does, it's mostly in his, his early writings. But, you know, what he, what he does there, he, he, he will say, you know, well, we'll talk about a world where I can, I can hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, be a critical critic in the evening, just as I have a mind. And, and you want one where one is actually kind of able to self-define the work that one does. And his, when he, when he, you know, he, I mean, he actually has a lot of admiration for capitalism, which I think is also something that's under uh, appreciated in, in his thought. You know, the passages where he talks, he talks about, you know, the, the wonders that the, the bourgeoisie has, has accomplished. But, um, you know, I think when he's criticizing capitalism, the, the he, he doesn't, spend a lot of time talking about about poverty even though he he suffered through it quite dramatically himself having his his some of his children die for for lack of of, of medicine and, and food but you know, his, his, what what's really bothering him about capitalism isn't poverty it's alienation the fact that that capitalism makes us do work that's not our own and so that productive work which he thinks should be the expression of ourselves in the way that qualitative individualism in the way that the students for democratic society say it should be that but it isn't you know we 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 have to do work for someone else according to the imperatives of profit making and capital accumulation so in this provides a way in which to see alienation as something that can be quite political, right? Sure. Well, for, for Marx, of course, it 
uh, it, it necessarily is. I mean, I mean, everything is is political in in some extent for for him. Yeah, it, that that you know, we we are in this this system of ruled by these structures that you know push us into to work that's not really our own. I mean, there, there's there's a certain analogy. Um, Catherine McKinnon, the the radical feminist, likes to say that or like to say that, that sexuality is to feminism what, what work is to Marxism. And the analogy, the reason she makes that analogy is, is saying that, well, it, it's, it's what is most our own, but most taken away. You know, that, 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 and I think that, that's sort of the, the, the central sort of issue here. And I think, and it, and it, it you know, makes for a lot of the, the ideas that kind of underpin qualitative individualism and the tensions in it of, of, of saying, you know, yes, be yourself, but you, you kind of have to fight to be yourself. And sometimes you may not succeed. You know, the, the world may not let you be yourself right. in the way that you hope to be. And that is, that is very divided along class and racial and all sorts of different identity lines, right? Right. Well, and, and then, you know, and, and those, those questions kind of then throw in their own wrinkle in, in that, you know, there's, there's a question of, of how, how we're going to define ourselves, especially in terms of those kinds of group identities. You know, well, I mean, one, one of the things that I, I found about the kind of the politics of the past few years on, on the left that I found personally a little bit worrying um, in the kind of approach that a sort of standpoint theory politics takes that sort of it kind of divides tends to divide people into a privileged group and a marginalized group on on these various axes of class and race and gender and sexuality and and so on and and tends to take those group identities as decisive in a lot of ways and ways that I find maybe a little unnerving as a brown person who's also a qualitative individualist. I've never wanted to be defined by my race and I don't like being defined by my race. And I don't think it's decisive of, of who I am and I don't want it to be, you know, and, and which, and it, and it's kind of a weird thing to say from someone who's you know devoted life to studying Indian philosophy. But the thing is that the Indian philosophy that was really important to me is not the, the, Ganesh oriented Shaivite Hinduism of my my family it's Buddhism which for the most part doesn't even exist in India anymore I discovered Buddhism not in India but in Thailand and I have no racial connection to Thailand I have no family ethnic anything connection there I happened to have a lucky break for a work opportunity there in my in my early 20s but you know I I don't have any communitarian ethnic identity connection to it or any more than, than a white person would. There's a certain way that I think, you know, people, there are these ideas about, you know, cultural appropriation or staying in your lane that, that, that say, you know, well, white people shouldn't write or, or write about or, or, you know, practice brown topics or brown, you know, Asian philosophies or Asian practices. And, and, and I find that frightening and, to some extent on qualitative individualist grounds that I think we should be who we are. And, and I think part of the qualitative individualist ideal is that who we are isn't defined by those community and ethnic categories. It certainly shouldn't be defined by our biology. I think that's a big, I mean, again, going back to the transgender movement, right? That uh, in, in, in a lot of ways, that's, that's a revolt against biology. It's saying, you know, you, you, you see a man and these kind of physical identity of a man, but, I am is a woman and you know so and similarly I mean I think you know people 
look at me and, and see an Indian, which I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm an immigrant to the US, but I'm an immigrant from Canada. You know, I, I've never liked the, the question of where are you really from? You know, that, that sort of implies like, oh, you know, you, where you're really from is where your people are from. But the, this, the, the approach of, of, you know, of cultural appropriation and related issues kinds of, it kind of pushes people back into those categories. It says, no, no, you actually have to be, you have to stay in your lane. You have to, if you're, if you're a white person, you have to do the white thing. If you're a brown person, you have to do the brown thing. And, and it's, it's staggering to me how much that ideal has taken off in a way that I think really goes against the ideal of, of self-definition. So you know, for, for me, I think it is part of the, the crucial, what's crucial about the idealist is saying like, no, you know, who I am is not these biological categories of, of, of race and, and gender that are sort of pre, predefined. It's something that is kind of my internal teleology based on my mind, my personality, my, my desires, my cares, my loves, and, you know, not on sort of what, what my body is. Maybe that was a bit of a tangent. I'm not sure. It was a tangent, but it was a very important tangent. And I'm really glad you went on it. I think these are, I think these are really important ideas to be discussing. And I find that there's not a lot of flexibility in terms of how these ideas are discussed, wherever you are on the political spectrum, if you're on the right or if you're on the left, there right, are certain things right. that you're supposed to believe. And, right. <laughs> and you know, and uh, I actually, I had a, anyways, I had a run-in on Facebook today, which is something I try so hard not to do. Yeah. Time, and I was like, look, we should be having these conversations, right? We should be having these conversations. I think, I think you make a really good point. I am very interested you know, and, and how these two ideas conflict and intersect and can work together because obviously being a brown person or being a woman or a female or what have you, having something as, as a part of your experience, it's a part of your experience, right? right. But, it's, but there's also ways in which you can transcend that experience or carry it with you to a new place or X, Y, and Z things, right? Define yourselves um, in, in different ways. And I, I, I don't know, I, I really appreciate yeah. that. This has me wondering, okay, so I, I, when I wanted to get to this, I want to before we end. So qualitative mm. individualism, I get the feeling from your writing and from this conversation that you have called it an ideal, right? And mm -hmm. there is something about it. There was, I think there's part, there's something about it that is actually fulfilling, that is nice, or at least in our current society, it functions for us as such. Um, right. I'm wondering, right, are there drawbacks to this that we should be on the lookout for? I mean, I know that, as you have said, our current system can frustrate our individualism, but are there things that we need to be careful about when we're sort of relating to ourselves? Yeah, I, I think I think there are, and you know that's that's something I've been kind of trying to explore in, in the the what I've been thinking through uh, most most recently, which is, is that the big danger of, of qualitative individualism is that it can be a barrier to to growing and getting better that you know pe people people can say oh this is just who i am about things that are actually quite self-destructive you know I, I was reading about this this book entitled the highly sensitive person which sort of talks about a category of people who are kind of you know, very 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 emotional and and get upset very easily and get and uh, you know, get 
angry easily and, and react very easily to, 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 to stimuli. And I think I'm one of those people. And, you know, the, and the, the book, and, you know, I haven't read it, so maybe I'm just shooting my mouth off here, but um, this is kind of my first reaction. The thesis of the book is like, well, this is just a different way of being, and, 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 it's, and it's totally okay, and we should celebrate that difference. And, and to that, I react, no, it's not okay. We should not celebrate that difference. This stuff has made me miserable for decades. You know, I like it, it's been really important for me to learn to, to control my emotions and, and learn that people's insults or, or you know, dismissals of me don't have to hurt me as much as, they, as, much as it's, it's natural for them to do. And I don't want to just say, this is me. You know, when, when people are, are anorexic and say, you know, oh, my, you know, my, my, my true self is, is, is super thin, you know, to, to the, the way that a heroin addict is super thin, like, you know, I think we don't necessarily want to affirm that and, and say, well, yes, you know, that's, that's who you are and it should be celebrated. And so, so there is, there's very much this tension. I think it's actually one of the, one of the key philosophical difficulties. And I think, again, one of the reasons why the people who've articulated the ideal can be sort of hard to, to live up to in a certain way. You know, people like Emerson and, and especially Nietzsche sort of take it to, to an extreme. And I, and I think, you know, there's, there's a balance to be found at some, at some point that, you know, we are, we are really particular and different from each other. And it's really important to appreciate that and respect that and develop that. But we are also members of the human species. And there are things that that implies, you know, the, the fact that refined sugar and fat are bad for you is true, no matter, no matter what your self-definition is. And I think, you know, some of the, the Buddhist points about suffering coming from craving and anger and, and mental causes are, are also likely true whatever your self-definition is. And, and then there are also, there are certain traits of character that will typically help you realize your self-definition, whatever it is. You know, having you know, tenacity and self-discipline and courage are, are valuable, you know, whatever it is that you hope to achieve with your life, whether it's something that you're going to get paid for or not. And so, and, and I think the, the danger of qualitative individualism is that it, it, moves us away from any sort of focus on virtue like that. I mean, and, you know, the, the word virtue itself, I think, is probably helpful to think about in this context because, um, you know, it, it, you know we, we embrace it in, in the field of virtue ethics and philosophy and, it's, you know, talking about how important it is to, to develop our character and become a better person. And yet in sort of everyday language, there's, I think there's a certain suspicion attached to the idea of virtue that it's sort of used more ironically than, than, any, than anything else, that, that, it, that it's sort of like it, people think virtue and they think of like 19th century Victorians enforcing an ideal of purity on women. And I think there's, you know, there's a real balance to be, to be struck here that, that, you know, we, we, I, I, one of the, one of the phrasings that I really like, there's a phrase that's kind of come into common usage in the past couple of years saying, be your best self. And, and that's, and, and I, I like that as a sort of encapsulation of, you know, how to reconcile qualitative individualism with uh, a more virtue ethics kind of approach. Mm. That was so wise. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate that a lot. And I, I absolutely agree with you that this is one of the primary, you know, primary conundrums that, that we are faced with, right? And I think right. it's, it's so much tied into our cultural, a lot of other cultural things, right? The relativism, I think, is a, is a big piece of this. Well, right. I, can, I can, right, I can believe this because who's to say otherwise, whereas a virtual right. would say, well, I would. And I, cu I currently have a friend who is so 
it is his life's mission to convince people that there are ethical truths, right? Mm-hmm. And and we that is something that we actually don't really have much of much of in this in this culture. But the melding of the two, being yourself and thinking critically about how to be your best self, is is I think a really neat solution. Yeah, yeah. And I you know I think we do tend to think of there being ethical truths when it comes to politics. You know, and I think the same kind of movements that have been around cultural appropriation and standpoint theory in the past past five years. I think I think one one th- you know I've, I've had a lot of problems with those movements, but something that I do find helpful and, and admirable about them is, is that they have, they have moved well beyond relativism. Maybe beyond is not the right phrasing. They've moved away from relativism. That, that, you know, that, that it is good to support marginalized people full stop. You know, it doesn't matter it, it doesn't matter whether whether you think helping out the poor is not right for me, or you know it, it doesn't matter whether you think you know well using the N word is right for me. You know it's it's just wrong. And I'm not, you know, I have a lot of problems with the content of the more universal ideal that they they tend to put out. But I think it's helpful that you know in, at a certain level they are advocating a more universal ideal and not not just in in ethics but even in epistemology that that they're they're saying the marginalized group actually does understand things better than the privileged group you know that 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 there's there's a reality that is actually grasped better by one group than than the other and that's not subjective it, it, you know the the fact that the the privileged group denies that does not make it so does not make their denial so and i think you know that kind of that w- that that brings a certain kind of universalism back into left wing discourse which i do think is healthy good thank you that gives me that gives me some hope <laughs> i good. i like i <laughs> that does that gives me some hope i think that's really important and i want to talk more about universalism and the left and uh, but we are running out of time, so right, right. perhaps perhaps another time. Um, this has been lovely. Do you have any any final thoughts or things you'd like to share or ask before we go? I guess maybe the one thing I, I want to uh, sort of add add as a note that's kind of a big the big personal question for for me right now is the relationship between qualitative individualism and Buddhism. I I'm a Buddhist. I consider myself a committed Buddhist. I practice Buddhism daily in um, in a couple of ways. You know, one what is typically considered a core Buddhist doctrine is the idea that there is no self, and and that's a very so that's a very uncomfortable fit with qualitative individualism. Although ironically, the groups of Westerners who have historically been most interested in Buddhism have also been the qualitative individualists. You know, I mean, I mean. Uh-huh. Emerson didn't have a very sophisticated understanding of Buddhism, but but he did like it, and so did Nietzsche. Well, I mean Nietzsche, to the extent Nietzsche liked anything, but um, you know, but Emerson and Nietzsche, they were certainly both interested in Buddhism, found it a helpful idea to think with and, and draw from, and certainly the the '60s generation, again, you know, the most qualitative individuals, and they were also the ones who went down to to Tibet to study with the Dalai Lama and 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 discover non-Western traditions. And I, and I think it's, it's kind of surprising to me in a way, just how little that tension has been explored between the idea that you should be your true self and the idea that there is no true self, considering the sort of sociology of the interaction of the groups, the, the, the lack of attention paid to that philosophical question is, is, is kind of striking. And, um, and I certainly don't have an answer to it in part because that groundwork hasn't been laid. So, but I, but that's kind of what I'm working on right now, uh, or one of the major projects that I, that I'm working on is to try and think through whether it's possible to have a view that is both qualitative individualist and Buddhist, especially around questions of the self. 
that is something that I have also worried on quite a bit. And perhaps we can talk again about it in a few months. Oh, there's, there's much I want to say, but I won't. I think this is, sure. a very, I think this is a very important question for people who are sort of seeking, you know, how to, how to make sense of, of their existence, especially mm -hmm. in our context. So uh, we can, we can leave it at that for now. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to pick this up again sometime later. Yes, and do keep up to date with Amode's blog, at which he will most likely be uh, writing about these kinds of concepts. Uh, yeah. That is Love of All Wisdom. Yeah. Uh, and I am Stephanie River. Y'all know where to find me. Uh, thank you so much, and thank you, Amode. Thank Stay you for inviting me. This has been really good. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye.